0: Good evening, everyone. It's a beautiful autumn night in Tucson, Arizona, and we welcome you to the Stewart Observatory and the 86th, 87th season of Stewart Observatory public evening lectures. Um, And we welcome those of you who are watching this lecture or podcast uh, on iTunes U via the World Wide Web and streaming at www.as.arizona.edu. Before I introduce tonight's speaker, I have a few announcements. First of all, we actually have an email list up on the back table where the flyers are. If you would like to get on our email list to be uh, receive notifications of further future public lectures, uh, feel free. Uh, we won't solicit you, we'll just keep you up to date with what's going on here at Stewart Observatory. Yes? Okay. Also we have flyers uh, if you'd like to see the schedule for the rest of the semester. You can see that on the flyers. And on the back, there are a couple of public lectures that our sister department, the Lunar and Planetary Laboratory, will be offering this fall. So you wanna check that out. Uh, We also have a flyer on our presentation in two weeks. Our next lecture will actually be a book signing. Professor Chrisnaby has a new book out. He's going to promote it. We'll have a signing and a reception. And if you wanna know what the book's about, there's a flyer of it on the back. Uh, Also, if you are a student here for an assignment, Unless you're in Professor Holberg's class, he's over there, I will be the person that will stamp the rest of your assignments down at this table after the question and answer period is over. So just sit tight. Finally, it is a clear and beautiful night. Therefore, the Raymond D. White Jr. 21-inch telescope is open for your viewing pleasure. If you've never looked through a relatively big telescope, I suggest at the end of tonight's lecture, big white building over there, big white dome, walk up the stairs. We have a couple of undergraduate astronomy majors running the telescope. And some of you might remember Dr. Charlotte Christensen. She's one of our postdoctoral fellows. She gave a talk here last spring. She'll be up there with the telescope operators to answer all of your astronomy questions. So if you've ever wanted a PhD astronomer to answer anything, you question you had about astronomy or cosmology or the universe in general, she's there to do it for you.
1: She's my office mate and she's super smart. So bring your hardest questions to her. Your, yeah. Oh, does so it need to on. go yeah. up some? I think,
0: is it on? Hello? Hello? Yeah, okay, good, you might bring it up a bit. All right, tonight's speaker, as you can tell, this is gonna be fun. Uh, Tonight's speaker is Dr. Deshika Narayan. Dr. Narayan received his bachelor's degree in physics and astronomy from the University of Florida. Then he came here. He's one of our own. He received his Ph.D. at Stewart Observatory, the University of Arizona, in astronomy. He then, uh, his first postdoctoral position, he was a CFA fellow. That stands for Center for Astrophysics, which is what the people at HAVID call their astronomy, you know, uh, thing. Yeah, I know it's habit, but, you know, okay, we have to put up with them. So he did his postdoc at Harvard, and then he came here, for the last three years, he has been the Bart J. Bach Fellow. Bart Bach was the fourth director of Stewart Observatory, from 1966 until 1970, and he uh, we uh, passed away in the early 80s, but we named a fellowship in honor of Professor Bach, and every three years we bring the best and brightest postdoctoral fellows to uh, do their research here at Stewart Observatory. But now Dr. Narayan is finishing up his term as the Bach Fellow, and uh, this December he will be moving to the Philadelphia area, where he will be an assistant professor at Haverford College in their Department of Physics and Astronomy. So, without further ado, I uh, introduce Dr. Narayan and ask him to give us a lecture on the topic, How to Make the Brightest Galaxies in the Universe. Dr. Narayan. Okay, that's, um,
1: that's, uh, that's some confidence in this talk, right? Uh, clapping before I even start. Um, I encourage you for sure to come in two weeks. Is this on? Is this loud enough? Okay, um, in two weeks when uh, dr. MP gives this talk he 's a very good lecturer um, I first want to encourage you to raise your hand and ask questions at any point There's no point in you know getting stuck on slide four and then falling asleep. I mean if you want to fall asleep, fall asleep, I fall asleep. but you know if, uh, if you actually want to pay attention and you get stuck, feel free to raise your hand and ask a question at any point um, or also just yell it out I mean I 'll probably hear you and stop. Um, So another thing I wanted to say is that um, I'll probably ask for some audience participation at various points. Um, So maybe just to see if you guys are good at raising your hands. How many people here have been to a steward public night before? Wow. That's a lot of you. How many of you are undergrads? The other half of you. How many of you undergrads are in Professor Moroni's class? All of you. Good for him. He's very nice to make you guys come to my talk. Um, and is anyone a professional or amateur astronomer? All right, good. OK, um, cool. I just, just kind of want to know. I used to come to these a lot when I was in grad school, but I haven't been in a couple of years. I had a baby. That's my excuse for everything. He's a little boy. So that's my excuse for everything as to why I haven't done anything in my life. Um, so sorry, I should back up. What you've been looking at here is um, a galaxy merger simulation. Uh, so this is a computer simulation of two galaxies, like the Milky Way and our nearest neighbor, Andromeda, merging together. Um, the Milky Way and Andromeda will, in fact, merge together somewhat like these. Um, so what you're seeing is a c- computer simulation. Uh, so this is a computer simulation. And then every so many time steps, um, that's a fancy word for you know time that's passed in the computer, we, we, uh, we overlay a Hubble Space Telescope image like this of a real life galaxy merger. And the point of this is to try to highlight um, that we're we're at a really exciting stage, uh, exciting stage for for astrophysics. Um, not only are we building the biggest telescopes in um, in the world, right here, actually, um, and have access to uh, telescopes that no one ever thought was possible, um, we also have access to computers and computer techniques that, I mean, 10 years ago we couldn't have imagined, and we we're able to simulate things super, super well. Like we're able to get down to um, very, very small scales while simulating entire galaxies in a universe of entire galaxies, and to something that looks somewhat like the real universe. I mean, I think you know this is a little bit uh, you know phenomenological, but it, it, to, to some degree, I think it's convincing that it looks a lot like the real universe. So this is a theme you'll see come out through this talk over and over again, as well as galaxy mergers. So I'm going to talk a lot about galaxy mergers. As you can guess, that's how you make the brightest galaxies in the universe. Um, so, the talk starts uh, pretty far away from Galaxy Mergers. This is, um, this is in the Andes in, uh, in Chile. And I went there for my honeymoon with my wife uh, in 2010, uh, 2011, summer. And... Um, and it's summer here and winter there, and we went snowboarding. I uh, guess we both really like to snowboard. And this is a picture uh, I took from the ski lift. It's pretty cool when you go skiing or snowboarding there. You, you, there's just all these smoking volcanoes. And um, you're actually on a volcano uh, when you're skiing. And the ski lifts are really bad, like super scary, um, really rickety ski lifts. And the, the place seems pretty nice all in all. So I asked the ski lift operator. you know, And this volcano is kind of smoking a little bit. And I asked him, why, why do you have such bad ski lifts? And he goes, El Volcan, as if the thing was going to go off at any point, and why invest in a better ski lift, which inspired a lot of confidence. So, so later that night, um, later that night we, we, uh, we'd been renting a cabin with some friends of ours. And um, no, this is supposed to be this blurry. It's okay. Yeah, if you don't mind. I have a lot of cool movies and stuff. Um, and actually, now that I see this, you can't, act, you can't see it at all with the lights up. I'll trust you not to fall asleep. It's okay. um, so you know, there was this amazing view. I mean, I thought we had really good views here. I've spent ten years or so here, and we do. We have fantastic views. But down there, it's another, it's another planet. I mean, we went out there, and, and you could just see so much sky, this is, um, tons and tons and tons of stars. Um, so this is a picture I took just like for one second. I, I took a quick picture, and then I set my camera exposure a little bit longer, like 15 seconds. That's all I could do. And this is what we saw. So it, just in case you didn't pay too much attention. You go from this to this. And it turns out this is, what is this? I heard many, many things. And many of those were right. Um, But the the, the umbrella answer I heard, which I was looking for, is this is the Milky Way. This is our own galaxy. Um, So what you're actually looking at here is toward the galactic center. And then this is the rest of our galaxy. So what, what you're doing, this is. An artist, conce- not artist, it's, it's kind of scientific, uh, conception of what we think the Milky Way looks like. Um, we can, you know, It's too big for us to fly out of it. Um, so you know, we have to kind of guess what it looks like. But we think we live about here. And this picture is looking in toward the galactic center. So it's sort of a 3D picture into the Milky Way. Right? So we live right here. And we, you know, in the last, I don't know how many years it's been since we've discovered that that's what the Milky Way was. But it, you know, let's say a century. It's been a long time. Um, We've discovered a lot about the Milky Way. This is our own galaxy. Um, The first thing is that most of the mass that you can see is made up of stars. All these white dots here are stars. Can anyone tell me what most of the mass in the galaxy actually is? Dark matter, very good. About 10 times as much mass that you can see is floating around in the form of dark matter. Uh, A small amount of the mass is made up of gas and dust. So the gas and dust, you can tell, the dust especially, this will come up over and over again in this talk, are these little patches here that look kind of reddish. And they're obscuring the white light. We'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. And then a small, very, very small amount is the supermassive black hole in the center of the galaxy. Um, so this gas and dust is pretty neat. It, it blocks out visible light. Um, what it actually does is it reprocesses it into the infrared, uh, which we'll talk about later. So this is these dark spots here. Um, this is the Milky Way again. And now you can see some of the dust. This, these dark spots here are not, uh, not lack of stars. There's probably just as many stars in here as there are in here. It's just that this dark stuff here is, are huge lanes of dust that are sitting in front of uh, the stars, in between the stars and us. So imagine I'm the stars, you're you. And then right here is a huge, huge cloud of chalkboard dust. Well, if you, done, if you did it enough, eventually you wouldn't see me, right? So it's the same sort of thing here. It's just a bunch of chalkboard dust. In between, uh, in between the outer stars in our galaxy and us. Um, we live not in isolation. You know, no, uh, no person is an island. No island. Our galaxy is not an island universe. Um, we live among many, many, many neighbor galaxies. This is a real life movie. Almost everything I show you tonight is going to be fake, but this is real. Um, <laughs> this is the only real thing I'm going to show you basically all night. Everything else is made up in my head. And a computer. Um, so this is the universe. This is, um, this is the nearby universe. All of these dots flying by you are real galaxies, just like our own. Our own galaxy has like a billion suns in it. More, actually, 10 billion maybe. And these all are like that. I mean, this is, this is phenomenal. And this is just the nearby universe. This isn't even, I mean, this goes out peanuts compared to the way how big the, real, uh, the rest of the universe is. Um, but these are, you know, these are real life galaxies that have been observed, observed by the Sloan Digitized Sky Survey. And they're all super different, which is really exciting. Um, they come in all sorts of shapes and colors and sizes and temperatures and, and dust amounts and black hole sizes. There's some that look like this. This is a sort of prototypical galaxy. It's, it's, I think it's the pinwheel. I, I, I'm a theorist, um, so I don't know a lot about the details of what's what. But I know what, what makes this galaxy, I think. Um, so this is, you know, a, a nice flocculent spiral um, related to our own galaxy. This is an edge-on galaxy with one of these huge dust lanes going across it. I think this is NGC 253, but someone can correct me if I'm wrong, which is, is a starburst galaxy. And these, um, these thick gas things here are probably uh, exploding stars, pushing winds of gas out into the intergalactic medium. So this red stuff here, is that obscuring dust that I was telling you about. And I'll tell you later how that obscuring dust turns optical light that we see with our eyes into very, very red colored light. Um, But otherwise, seemingly normal galaxy. This is a slightly different galaxy. Um, It's an ongoing galaxy merger. It might have even been in that movie that I showed you earlier. Uh, So this is either in first passage, the galaxies tend to come and bang together and then come in for a final coalescence like that. So this is either during the first passage or during the final coalescence. And sometimes when galaxies merge, they form supermassive black holes in the center. Well, they don't form them. The black holes were already there. But they allow the black holes to grow to something like a billion times the size of our own sun. And sometimes these black holes can shoot out a bunch of energy. And sometimes you can see this energy in the radio like this. So all of this is just to, I mean, these are just Random facts about random galaxies, but all of this is just to kind of highlight the beautiful diversity of galaxies that are in our universe. I mean, you know, I could play that movie for you again, and we could do it again after the talk if you're very interested. But you know, there's there's so many galaxies out there. On the top of your head, there's there's no there's no number. In the whole universe. Infinity. infinity, infinity. I mean, no, that's not really true. We think there's a mass to the universe. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I couldn't tell you. Um, I, 10 billion, really, I don't know. I make, I'm making it up, though. I have zero idea. Yeah, 100 billion? OK, I, I like that number better. it's good. Makes my science more important. 50 billion, yeah. Six. Um, anyways, you know, the point is that this is a, we live in a beautiful universe, right? There's, there's a bunch of galaxies out there, um, where a bunch is something more than a million, less than a gazillion. Um, and they come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. So this is just our nearby universe. These are just the guys that live in our neighborhood. So about I don't know what is it? Uh, it's 2003, 20 years ago. 20 years ago. Very good. Know a lot more about this than I do. Um, we put the Hubble Space Telescope in space, and this has been, I think, you know, in modern era, unarguably, maybe over humanity, arguably, the most successful scientific experiment ever. It's, it's, I mean. It's still, you know, it's, it's old, it's really old, and it's, 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 you know, it's, it's barely going. And we apply to this thing at an oversubscription rate of 10 to 1 or 12 to 1. Um, I mean, it's, it's so, so competitive this late in the game to get time on the Hubble Space Telescope. So when we first got the Hubble Space Telescope, as we do every single telescope, it seems like, we, uh, the director of the, of the telescope at the time, Steve Beckwith at the observatory, used his director's time to point at the darkest patch of sky he could. And, I mean, it seems like a dumb idea, right? Like, he just found the spot of sky where there was nothing else. Like, he could not see anything. And they just sh- opened the shutter, like I did with my camera in Chile. And, and after however long they exposed, this is what they saw. So they thought there was nothing. And this is what showed up. So when, you, when you blow it up a little bit, it's that same beautiful diversity of galaxies, that huge zoo... Of objects just like our own, but so different at the same time, living not anywhere near us. I mean, these things were super super far away and as as you know the public talk aficionados here probably know, when you look at things really far away you 're looking back in time because and for the you know, maybe the people who are less experienced in astronomy, the reason for that is that light has a travel time, and so it takes that light that emits Uh, some amount of time to get to you. So imagine that clock is really far away. And I'm seeing it now. Well, I'm I'm not seeing it now. I'm seeing it now plus the time it took the photon to get from that clock to me. And so these galaxies are so, so far away that you're looking back like 10 billion years or something, the age of the universe. So this is sort of a temporal picture of what we think the universe's history looks like. This is today. And this is the Big Bang, 14 billion years ago, plus or minus something. And then, you know, maybe like a billion years after the Big Bang, so 10 to 9 years, 1,000 million, uh, the first big galaxies started forming. Maybe 500 million years before the, after the Big Bang. About 2 billion years after the Big Bang, that was when the universe was really exploding with activity. It was just popping. It was just stars were forming all over the places. Uh, black holes were growing from nothing to a billion times the mass of our sun. And, and the universe was super, super bright. And then eventually it became its very, very slow, long goodbye. And we've had now 10 billion years of this, this decline, where you know it's like a recession that won't go away. It's just that the light just disappears, and the black holes quit growing. And we're forced to look back at this time, like the prisoners in Alcatraz looking at San Francisco and thinking that, that time looks so much better than, than, than right now. And that's what we were looking at with the Hubble Space Telescope. We were looking back to 2 billion years after the Big Bang. So that's two billion years after the Big Bang, right here. And this is us here. So we're looking back at the universe as it was during the most exciting time in the universe's history. Except after the Big Bang. That was pretty exciting, too, you got to admit. But this, this made the galaxy formation this really challenging problem. I mean, this is sort of this huge menagerie of galaxies that we see today. And we see a different zoo of galaxies at... At the early universe. We call this high redshift, also, is another way to say early universe. And it's, you know, it's being astronomers, we want to understand everything about both of these things. Where do these galaxies come from? And where do these galaxies come from? And how do we get from these galaxies to these galaxies? Because this is back in time 10 billion years ago, and this is today. Something happened in the 10 billion years to go from this to this. And in that process, what made all these galaxies look different from one another? Why are some of them spirals and some of them shooting out black hole driven jet, jet, driven winds? And why are some of them red and some of them blue and some ellipticals and some peanut shaped? And it's equivalent to asking the same question about ourselves. You see monkeys, you see people that look like monkeys and you see people from, that's me, it's okay. <laughs> I, I just, I used, <laughs> and, and you see clues from cavemen. And what's the connection between between all these things? How do these two, which we see today, relate to one another? Both of these kind of look like this back here. It's the exact same thing. How do these things all relate to one another? We think these relate to these things back here. How do these things all relate? It's a very, very complicated question. And a key, key part of this question, one of the, I mean, I think, fastest growing fields of astrophysics today, especially galaxy formation astrophysics, it's worrying about the biggest and brightest things. Yep. I have a question about earlier. So do we know if there's any concrete reason for the decline of the That's a very good question. And we don't really know. Um, there are speculations out there. Uh, one, one that came from um, a professor who used to be here, uh, Romeo Deve, um, who uh, Terence, the, uh, the po- post-back behind you used to work with. Um, he came up with the idea, which I think is probably about right. Um, I mean, it's hard to know the details, but um, that the, so the universe is expanding after the Big Bang. And it's been expanding since the Big Bang. And So this is today. This is Big Bang. Big Bang was infin, infinitesimally small here and you know, pretty big here. And so it's been expanding the whole time. And when you expand, the density of things drops, because density is mass over volume. So it's you know, how much matter you have packed into a very small amount of volume. So imagine you have you know, a box here. Uh, full of lead or something. And then I expand that box. Well, it's going to have the same amount of lead in it, but it's not going to be as dense. It won't sink in water, for example, whereas before it might have. So density causes stars to form. Uh, You need very dense materials to form stars. And the universe was very dense back then. It's not as dense now. We think that has something to do with it, Um, in addition to just a conspiracy between how much matter was falling into galaxies and and giving them fresh fuel for star formation. I know that's probably a little more complicated answer than you really wanted, but it's, it's a very complicated question. We don't, we don't know the answer. OK, so back to um, how do we get to the brightest galaxies in the universe. And again, I'm happy to have questions whenever, uh, whenever you want. Um, so before we talk about the brightest galaxies in the universe, and these are a, a key player in galaxy formation astrophysics, um, we should talk about how we found these galaxies. So does anyone, this is, this is a bonus question, does anyone know what telescope that is? Oh my god, very good. This is on top of Mount Graham, um, outside Safford, Arizona. If you go east on I-10, you know, past Wilcox, and you turn off the road sort of toward the Chiricahuas, and you go toward Safford instead. this you know one of the tallest mountains around. Um, I took this picture. I used to be an observer before I became a theorist. Um, and observing is super fun, too. It just trains you. You're up all night, all day, all night, all day. So I switched to theory. I just couldn't handle it. Um, <laughs> But this doesn't look like, in theory, it's a lot easier. It's computer coding. So. Um, this, is, uh, you know, this doesn't look like your regular telescope, right? It looks like your radio dish if you have a dish network or something. So this doesn't work the same way as an optical telescope. So the big mirrors that you're used to seeing, those catch light that we see with our eyes. Of course, those catch mostly optical, a little bit of infrared uh, light. This catches far infrared light, really far in the radio wavelength regime. Um, so this is up, uh, like I said, four hours away. The LBT, the Large Binocular Telescope, is like maybe 100 yards up the hill this way. And then the Pope Scope, the Vatican's telescope, is maybe 50 yards down the hill that way. Um, so this doesn't look at optical wavelengths. It looks at infrared wavelengths. Infrared is the same sort of wavelengths. They're a little longer than the wavelengths you see with our eyes. And that's uh, like what snakes and nighttime vision things see in. That's what you know, the Marines or Navy SEALs see in, what they put the goggles on. Um, and this is the electromagnetic spectrum. This is, uh, this is all the ways that we see light. So this is the wavelength here of what we see with our eyes, the visible. It's about uh, ten to 1 millionth to 1 10 millionth of a meter, uh, the photon sizes, the wavelength size. It's about the size of you know, our bacteria, or viruses, or something. And then you know, what we see is very, very tiny compared to what we know about in the uh, and the electromagnetic spectrum. This is the ultraviolet here. This is the stuff that, you know, comes, just enough of it gets through the atmosphere um, from the sun. The sun doesn't put out a lot of ultraviolet radiation, but, you know, it puts out enough that it'll kill you. Um, and it, it comes through the atmosphere and, and gets you. And this is a very higher energy. This is much higher energy. This is x rays, right? So high energy, you need lead to stop it. That's why you put lead on you when you get an x ray. Um, and this is the infrared. This goes the other direction. It's longer wavelength. And it's, uh, it's um, much, much lower energy. So this is, you know, these things can be something like up to a millimeter photon sizes. I mean, the photons are pretty long. They're getting to the point where like, you, know, you could put your finger out as big as these photons are. And this is the wavelength regime that this sort of telescope sees. So you could ask, well, why build a telescope in the infrared? Our eyes can't see it. Who cares, right? The thing is, half the universe's energy is put out, half the universe's visible energy is put out in the infrared. Um, there is just tons and tons of infrared radiation floating around. So we had this movie, and we saw all these uh, galaxies, and we saw them all in the optical. We saw them with what we would see with our eyes. But there's tons of energy in the infrared. So what happens is in those galaxies, you have a bunch of stars, right? A billion or 10 billion. Uh, you can even have uh, a trillion stars. Ten, yeah, 10 a trillion stars in and there's a bunch of dust, just like chalkboard eraser dust floating around. The dust comes from uh, dead stars. The dead stars kind of slough it off, like their skin. It's, it's kind of gross if you say it like that. But it's, I mean, otherwise pretty normal. I mean, we are all made up of that, those elements, so it can't be too gross. Um, and then so there's this dust floating around in space. And the light from the stars hits the dust, just like if I had this and I had chalkboard eraser, you'd see the laser the whole way through, right? I mean, you've all played that game, because that light is stopping, or the dust is stopping the light. So this dust stops the light, and then it re-radiates it. It absorbs that light, and then it says, well, I don't need all this energy. So it gets rid of some of it. And it gets rid of that light in the infrared. It mostly has to do with how cold this light is, this dust is. This dust is like 30 degrees above absolute zero. And You know, those of you who maybe go on to major in physics or something, hopefully many of you young aspiring minds, you will learn that cold objects emit in the infrared. So this is what we were seeing, sort of, in this galaxy. This is one of the galaxies that I showed you early on. This is an edge-on starburst galaxy, I think. Um, And these red lines here are dust. This is a bunch of dust that's been taken by the stars. uh, Sorry, a bunch of light that's been taken by the stars absorbed by the dust, and then re-radiated out in very red wavelengths. These red wavelengths are false colored here to look red to our eyes. But in reality, they're so red, our eyes would not see them. Are there any, any questions? Good. So we developed these fancy infrared, and I'll also say submillimeter. Um, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a jargony term, and I apologize, but it's, it's kind of hard to avoid. Um, so in the infrared is the visible here. Um, the infrared wavelength regime goes out to 10 to the minus 3 meters. That's a millimeter. Right? So the submillimeter wavelength regime would be this really far infrared wavelength regime. So we call these sorts of telescopes the submillimeter telescopes, which is why its name is the submillimeter telescope. Um, it's not very inventive. It's actually the Heinrich Hertz submillimeter telescope, but no one calls it that. Um, so this was one of the first uh, big submillimeter telescopes ever developed. It was called the James Clerk Maxwell Telescope. It's on the top of Mauna Kea uh, in Hawaii. Um, so I don't know, how, it's like 12,000 feet or 13,000 feet high. It's very high. 14,000, did someone say? Very, 14,000 feet high. It's very high. Um, and this is owned uh, in part by the UK. I think Europe might have some time on it and Caltech. Uh, has some time on it. So when they built this telescope, just like we did with the Hubble Space Telescope, and just like we do with every telescope, and I, the Royal, we I'm, I'm sure all this happened before I was born, um, looked out in the same spot that Hubble looked at. So this part happened while well, I was alive. So it, uh, it looked out in the same spot as the Hubble Space Telescope, and and before nothing had ever been seen in the infrared and in the submillimeter, and this is what showed up. Um, does anyone, know, does anyone remember what the last image looked like, when the Hubble looked at out? It looked like, uh, like this, right? And so it's very, very different. Um, the first thing you'll notice is that there's these bright spots here that aren't here. These bright spots here, these white spots, those are galaxies. In fact, that's the brightest galaxy in the universe. Now, it's hard to tell, right? But that's what that is, um, as, as far as we know so far. Um, in this image, you see one, two, three, four, five, six galaxies. I, I mean, it's complicated how they figure out how these are galaxies, and I don't, I don't actually even really know the details myself. But you know, these are six or so galaxies. There's a thousand galaxies here. So these are much, much more rare at the same time in the universe as this. Uh, you know, ten or ten billion years ago, two billion years after the Big Bang, twelve billion years ago. Um, same spot. But there's only maybe five here, and there's a thousand here. So right away, this tells us that looking in the infrared and submillimeter is getting us some freakish galaxies, something very, very high, uh, way out in the, 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 this, the distribution tail. You know, this is uh, the average Joe, and this is the the bourgeois. And so it turns out we call these things submillimeter galaxies because they're detected in the submillimeter, and they are absolutely crazy galaxies. Um, just compare them to our own galaxy. Uh, they lived 10 billion years ago. And this is 0 billion years ago today, obviously, right? Um, we form stars at a rate of like two to three suns per year. And The rest of your life in astronomy talk, if you ever see a dot like this with a circle around it, it means the sun. So we form stars at two to three solar masses per year. Uh, so about two to three worth of our own sun and mass forms. And these things a 1,000 or 2,000, 3,000 of these things form. Uh, your Professor Moroni has, uh, has found some that have like four or 5,000 suns per year. I mean crazy stuff. Uh, we're relatively puny. We have 30 billion of our own suns in our galaxy. These things have up to a trillion. And the same thing with the brightness. I mean, we're pretty dim cosmologically. We have like 20 billion solar luminosities. So the, the worth of 20, 20 billion suns, just like our own, these things have 100 trillion. I mean, I, you know, these numbers are hard to imagine, but this is a lot, lot bigger than that. A lot. So it turns out submillimeter galaxies are, are crazy. They're the most luminous, the brightest, and most heavily star-forming galaxies in the universe. And they're, they live pretty much exclusively at this time, two billion years after the Big Bang, when everything is going on. And they're like the giants, the key players in, in this whole, whole game, I mean, depending on how you ask the question. So... That's cool, but you know, why do we care? I mean, beyond the fact that it's just a little bit of a a freak show, you know, who who actually cares? Um, but you know, we we, we want to know what they are. We want to know where they come from. Um, and the truth is, we have no idea. This is like it's 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 almost embarrassing, right? They're the, they're, they're by far the brightest things uh, in the infrared in the sky, and we have no idea what they are. So for example, these, um, you know, when the first maps started coming out, they started taking, uh, figuring out where, you know, how many galaxies there were per unit area on the sky. So this is a map of the sky in the submillimeter, and each of these dots here is a galaxy that's been detected, one of these submillimeter galaxies. This is a pretty big map. Um, so this was the first, first basic data we had about submillimeter galaxies, which is how many there are, right? I mean, this is b- basic science. We're literally just counting. And we try to maybe make it a little bit more basic and say, or a little bit more complicated, and we say, well, okay, there's this many dim ones and this many bright ones, this many intermediate ones. But, you know, to first order, we're just counting. Um, But even that turned out to be too hard of a problem. Um, So we started looking in cosmological simulations. So these are numerical simulations, computer simulations, that uh, simulate the structure of the whole universe and the formation of all the galaxies in the universe. So this is a a very state-of-the-art version of one of these simulations. It's run by... uh, by, by the group I used to work with at Harvard, um, and uh, this is not the kind of stuff they had in the mid 2000s when when they were doing this problem. But you know, it was it's still pretty good. Um, and you know, we looked in these simulations for these galaxies, uh, and um, it was it was bad. We couldn't find them. There was almost none. So this is one of two technical plots I'll show this whole talk. Um, but it's a really easy plot, so it's it's, it's okay. Um, so we. We looked in the simulations for all of these galaxies. And the way we, we quantified it was trying to match the way the observers had quantified it. So these are each these galaxies. Okay? This axis here shows number. So this is a lot of them. This is very few. And this shows brightness. This is very bright. And this is not bright. So what this means is that there's very, very few in real life. These are real life uh, observations. There are very, very few of the very, very bright submillimeter galaxies. Right? There's very few of the freaks. That's Expect that. There's much less of the dimmer sub millimeter galaxies. The dimmer ones are still a trillion, a thousand times brighter than our own Milky Way. They're still really bright. They're just not as bright as these. So, these, we call this the number counts because you're literally just the counts, the, num- the number of each type of galaxy. And this is what the simulation showed. which This is a logarithmic scale, meaning we're under here by a factor of 50 to 100. And that's bad, I mean, if, you know, this, the cosmological simulations that we think are describing the formation and evolution of the universe can't find the brightest and most crazy galaxies that we see with our telescopes, I mean, we've got something wrong, right, in our, in our, in our, in our, in our knowledge of astrophysics. And since this problem has come out in 2005, this is a plot I show in, in like, in real, uh, like, technical colloquium. Uh, so the names mean something, I think, to very galaxy formation type people. I mean, I only show those in conferences. But the point of this is not to show you the names. It's to show you the number of papers that have come out by famous groups across the world uh, that have tried to work on uh, figuring out where these galaxies come from. I mean, it's really it's the bane of galaxy formation theorists. Um, and so what I'll describe is a model that we think works. Uh, but it's you know, under heavy debate. I mean, this is, this, this is an ongoing topic that, that we, we argue about it regularly. So, so how would we go about trying to figure out what these galaxies are? And what I'm asking is, what does a computational astrophysicist actually do? Um, so we, we start off with our undergraduate education. Right? We take all the, the science that we learned in, in, in our beginning astronomy classes. And we usually majored in physics and astronomy. So we learned some more equations about physics. Uh, and then we usually go on to graduate school, and we learn some more equations of physics and astronomy. But they're all basically the same things you learn as an undergrad, just slight variations on those. Uh, and there's different types of equations. There's equations that describe gravity and force. That's you know what gravity, you know gravity. There's fluid dynamics equations. We can treat most of the gas in a galaxy like a fluid, just like an aquarium. Um, and there's radiative transfer equations. This is a fancy way of saying these are the equations that govern how light goes through a galaxy. And then there's a whole lot of computer code to get these things to actually play nice together. And we put these things in a big computer code, and we ship them off to a supercomputer. This, No news to Chris Sharp, he's, a, one of the, he's an expert computational astrophysicist sitting there in the audience. Um, we ship these things off to a supercomputer. Uh, this is uh, one of the uh, IBM supercomputers, and what these things each are, are a rack full of like 1,000 computers? So this is actually a picture of the, um, of the older UAHPC. So it's the high-performance computing. Um, it's, just, it's over by one of the bridges there by Speedway. So what these things are is these are different computers with the same idea. In each of these towers, there's like, uh, not 1,000, but you know, um, maybe 100. Uh, how did I do that? Uh, maybe a hundred different computers and they all talk to each other via this ethernet cable so you send the information to one big computer and it distributes out all the information among all its working computers and the working computers all sit there and chug away and think about it and then send all of its information back to another computer which collates that information and process it and, and, and then sends new information out to the computers and so on and this is how we simulate the universe there, in the back there's a question Well, they have to, they, have, they can't go anywhere. Um, that's the, the basic answer. I mean, there's nowhere for them to go. The universe is is, is, is not going, like, hasn't gone anywhere uh, since then. They're, they, you know, they're not the same galaxies that are living around us right now. They live on some other side of the universe. But there's analogous galaxies that we think could be the descendants of what we look at. So, I mean, a way to think about it is that imagine... You're, you know, you live in Tucson, you're on a trip to uh, South Dakota or something where they have dinosaur bones, right? And you go archeology span you and you find a bunch of human caveman bones. And you say, well, there's cavemen here. They couldn't have gone anywhere because they died here on Earth. Um, but I want to figure out where these cavemen came from. Um, and then you say, well, there's probably also cavemen or descendants like us uh, in Tucson too. So that's the same idea. The submillimeter galaxies lived far away and their descendants whatever they turned into live far away but we can assume that there were some in our own neighborhood as well probably Um, and and it's just sort of like if cavemen died on earth they couldn't go anywhere because it's on earth the galaxies can't go anywhere the universe is just stuck here so you know we simulate all this stuff and the cool thing that we're doing these days is that we're simulating real observables where you know we're, we put in this whole new set of equations what i said before the radiative transfer equations which simulate the propagation of light through different medium and it lets us know what these things would actually look like in real life so this is a simulation done by a friend of mine uh patrick johnson who now works for spacex one of those companies that sends rockets into space and um this is simulating the simula- the merger between our own milky way and the andromeda galaxy which is going to happen in some amount of time i couldn't tell you how long but you know. Some amount of time, probably many billion years from now. Um, so this blue light that you see here are young stars that are forming. And then this red stuff that you start to see here is the beginnings of some dust. So what happens in a galaxy merger is tons and tons of dust forms. These stars evolve. Lots and lots of stars form. They evolve. They slough off their skins and leave behind a lot of dust. And so it's hard to tell on this projection. On my computer, it definitely gets a little better. But this all looks a lot redder than it looked when it first started. Partly because of old stars, partly because of dust. And actually, what we're going to see now is this galaxy is going to rotate across the frame. And, uh, and we're going to see this huge dust lane go across the middle of it. Boom, there it is. And remember how we saw, I mean, I don't have the image as the next image, unfortunately. Um, but uh, you know, we saw a couple images with these huge red dust lanes going across them. So it's, it's pretty cool stuff that we can do these days. So. This is one of the neatest things, I think, about this, is that it's hard to tell what's real and what's fake anymore. Um, I mean, to the untrained eye, I think. Um, so as, a show of example, or as an example, for, with a show of hands, how many of you think the galaxy merger on the left is the real life merger? And how many on the right? Very good. Um, so you know, as I, you could guess, one of these is real, and one of these is fake. It turns out almost all of you are wrong. This was real. And this was fake. Um, One of these is a real-life image, state-of-the-art, like uh, last year, of a bunch of star-forming clouds in a nearby spiral galaxy, like the Milky Way. One of these is a fake image that I made for my thesis. How many of you on the left think, how many of you think this is the real one? (laughs) And how many of you think that's real? Oh my gosh, only like 20 of you. Voted. I I like to think you voted 50-50. I'll tell myself that to make myself feel better. This was the fake one. This was the real one. Last one. How many of you think that this is the real life image of a supermassive black hole ejecting about a million times the mass of our sun in molecular gas? And how many of you think this is a supermassive black hole ejecting a million times? This is the fake one. This is the real one. (laughs) This is awesome. You guys make me feel so good about myself. Thank you. Yeah. Um, OK, so back to the original question. let ends see, 8, 8.30. I'll end at like 8.20, so we have extra time for questions. Okay, I'll make sure. Um, so the, you know, back to the original question, what are submillimeter galaxies? And we can make a guess. Let's guess that submillimeter galaxies are galaxy mergers. I've been showing you mergers this whole time. And the reason we think that that's a good yes is because galaxy mergers, we know from theoretical simulations, can make a bunch of new stars. And it turns out new stars are a lot, lot brighter than old stars. And so it's a very efficient way to make really, really bright galaxies. As you bang galaxies together, you make a bunch of new stars, and then you make a bunch of light as a consequence. And it turns out in the nearby universe, our own neighborhood, um, all the brightest galaxies, to, I mean, to the letter of the law are all galaxy mergers. It's, it's pretty awesome. This is uh, one of my friends, Aaron Evans, at U- University of Virginia took this and are, made this with the Hubble Space Telescope. So, um, so we can look at a theoretical simulation and see what happens. This was made by a buddy of mine, uh, T.J. Cox, um, who works for Voxer now. I don't know if any of you have Voxer, the app on your iPhone or something. It's like a walkie-talkie app. He wrote that. Um, So but before that, he wrote some galaxy merger simulations. And so what you see here is, um, this is a plot of the star formation rate. So this is how many stars are forming per unit year. This is one here. This is about the band where the Milky Way is. And this is like 10 and 100. And this is time. So this ball here will show what the star formation rate, how many stars are forming per year in this galaxy merger simulation as the galaxy merger evolves. So keep your eyes focused on two things. One at the same time. One is this movie of the galaxy merger, but you know what that looks like. You've seen a few of those now. And at the same time, the star formation rate in this ball and how it goes with the fun- as a function of time. So we start the movie. Does this work? And the galaxies begin to merge. And as they begin to merge, they bang together and boom, you form 10 times as many stars per year as you were forming before. You go back to a normal, boring mode as the galaxies separate, and they become a little bit more normal again. But then they become entangled again and get really, really dense. And when you have high densities, like I was saying before, you get a lot of star formation. And now you're forming stars at 100 times the rate of the Milky Way. And then eventually you've used up all your gas, which is turning into stars, and you enter this very, very boring, dead part of your life. We can play this again just uh, to see what it looks like. Again, as the galaxies merge, they form a ton of stars. And it doesn't, you can think of just basically the star formation rate as how bright it is. So when they come in and bang together, we get really, really bright galaxies. And eventually, then it dims out. So we think maybe, as a guess, as a hypothesis, you remember the scientific method from kindergarten, is that the brightest galaxies in the universe are all galaxy mergers. And when we run real simulations, this is the second technical plot. We'll call that one not technical, because it's a movie. This is the only other technical plot there is This is the infrared brightness for a big simulation that me and a collaborator at, 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 in Germany now ran This is the infrared brightness and this is time This line here shows about how bright the galaxy has to be to be detected in one of these infrared sub-millimeter surveys These observations The the panels up here show basically what's happening. They're not quite lined up. So when the galaxies that are uh, being simulated emerge are far away, it's not forming stars very rapidly, and it's not very bright. They come in and bang for final coalescence, and you go through a huge burst of star formation, and you form stars at 3,000 times, or maybe 1,500 times the rate our own Milky Way does, and it becomes incredibly infrared bright. We're following the black line here. And it becomes incredibly infrared bright And then eventually the star formation dies off And it goes away So this is super exciting Um, I'll skip these two plots here I drew some, hand drew some cartoons But they're not that exciting I want to make sure we have time for questions So fine, this is fairly convincing I think, you know All the brightest galaxies in the local universe Are galaxy mergers When we run a bona fide At the time, it was an 08 State of the art simulation for how galaxies might merge in the early universe, and what their infrared brightness might look like, we formed galaxies that were as bright as submillimeter galaxies. So we could say, okay, project's done. It's all over. But it turns out, if we ask the simple question, are all submillimeter galaxies galaxy mergers? The answer is no. Like, resoundingly. And it turns out what we do is we look in these cosmological simulations, these big simulations that simulate the structure of the universe, and we look at all the galaxies that we can find that are living at this time period, um, two billion years after the Big Bang. And when we look at all the galaxies in this little box that is when all the submillimeter galaxies live, but now in our fake computer simulation, we don't find enough galaxy mergers. There's just like a factor of ten less galaxy mergers than there are submillimeter galaxies. So there must be something else going on. And what was what's been missed, I think, and our theory is in previous generations of computer simulations is that galaxy disks, just normal galaxies that are not merging in the early universe are crazy. They don't look anything like the plain disks that are in today's universe. So this is one of these disks in the early universe. Compared to our own Milky Way, our own Milky Way is of living in the golden ages of the universe and we're forming stars at a few suns per year. This disk is forming like 100 suns per year. If we look at a simulation in very high detail, this is a simulation of the Milky Way. And it's very, very calm looking. This is the stars in the simulation, and this is the gas. If we look at a Milky Way analog, but now in the early universe in these simulations, this is what it looks like. It's a huge mess. These are the stars, and these are the gas. There's so much gas that it just violently collapses and fragments all over the place. And you can't stop it from forming tons and tons of stars. And that these galaxies that are disks in the early universe are as bright as the galaxies today that are driven by mergers, and this was really confusing. I mean, the I mean the whole community kind of went through an upheaval when observationally people, people sort of figured this out in two thousand eight. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't even I didn't explain that. Sorry. This was also actually taken from a technical talk, um, so I didn't I didn't look carefully enough. So. Um, the SFR is star formation rate. And so this is like a Milky Way light galaxy forming stars at two suns per year. These are star formation rates of high, uh, early universe disk galaxies. And they're forming at 50 to 100 suns per year. This bar is just a unit of measure of the size. A kiloparsec is uh, 10 to the 21 centimeters. This is a weird unit. Um, so in the last minute, we'll ask how do we test this? Because, you know, it's fun to come up with these theories and these computer simulations. But a theorist and an observer likes to know that we're right. I mean, we're, we're spending our entire lives figuring this stuff out. Unfortunately, you know, what? the prediction we had was that some of these galaxies that are submillimeter galaxies are galaxy mergers. And some amount of them are disks. And we can quantify how many of them there are. Unfortunately, when we look at the submillimeter galaxies right now, this is what we see. I mean, is that a merger or a disk? Who knows? I mean, it could be a frog, right? I mean, it's anything. And if you, if you blow it up, it doesn't get any better. But luckily, we're at this really awesome time in astronomy, observationally, especially in this field. There are tons of great telescopes that work in this wavelength regime um, that, uh, that can, can really analyze these galaxies. So this is the South Pole Telescope. Um, this is not water. This is a desert of snow. It's at the South Pole, like literally. Um, this is uh, one of the biggest, uh, you know, one of the big people in this project is, is Professor Dan Maroney. Um, so this is his field he studies as well. Um, and so this, this telescope is down there just surveying the entire southern sky nonstop. These, uh, these telescopes can work in the daytime as well as night, so just nonstop surveying the sky, finding tons and tons and tons and tons of these submillimeter galaxies. It's amazing. And what's super cool is that also in the Southern Hemisphere, high in the Chilean Plateau, um, in uh, the Atacama Desert, it's at like 18,000 feet or higher. Um, we've built, the community has invested the uh, most money it's invested in any scientific experiment ever. I think maybe except the LHC, I'm not sure. Um, called ALMA, the Atacama Large Millimeter Array. And these are 60 or 64... Uh, of these telescopes, I think they're each 50 meters. Our own SMT submillimeter telescope is 10 meters. Or Sorry, these are all at uh, 35 meters or 25 meters. Still, right? At least two and a half times as big as our own telescope. right? And there's 50 of them. And we're going to be able to look at things at incredibly high resolution. And hopefully soon, when we look at galaxies in the early universe, they won't look like smudges. But we'll be able to see with very high fidelity galaxies that look like nice, beautiful spiral disks or maybe ongoing mergers at the same resolution that we see these computer simulations at. I mean, I think in the next decade, we're going to be able to solve a lot of these problems immediately with with telescopes just like this. Uh, Thanks for paying attention.
0: Thank you very much, Deshika. We do have time for questions. If you have a question, raise your hand and I'll bring the microphone to you.
1: It doesn't even have to be about this. It can be about anything in astronomy. I just may not know the answer, but we could try. So what's your theory on that really bright submillimeter oh, galaxy? Right. So is that it was, a
0: merger? Or is it?
1: Yeah, so that's a really interesting one. Its name is GN 20. The GN is Goods North. That's the field that all these telescopes looked in. And it was the 20th galaxy discovered. Um, and that's a really interesting galaxy. So in our simulations, we would say that has to be a galaxy merger. It's so bright, the probability that it's not is, is incredibly small. Um, and it's probably something that's really rare, like a merger between two galaxies that are the same mass. Uh, that's the most efficient way to form stars. Um, much, much more common are galaxy mergers that are a big galaxy and a really tiny galaxy tiny galaxy. But those aren't very efficient at forming stars. It's the big ones that really form a lot of stars. So In our simulations, we'd say that's a very likely scenario for that. It's a very rare sort of event, but that's a very rare sort of galaxy. And the numbers actually work out just right so that it would work. Um, that said, some, uh, some images that have been made recently with ALMA, this telescope um, from some collaborators in Germany, have, made, uh, have shown a big gas disk. And so that's exactly the opposite of what we would say it is. Um, So, you know, we can look in the simulations and weasel our way and say, well, maybe sometimes these mergers actually make disks. But, you know, the more interesting answer would be that it actually is a disk and we have no idea why, theoretically, and now we have a new problem to follow. We have another
0: question here. What are the possibilities of
1: other mechanisms? For example, what if these are supermassive black holes forming and we just happen to be right at the beam of a jet being ejected? Uh, right, so um, the jets primarily emit in the uh, far radio um, due to synchrotron emission. And so it, they aren't actually incredibly bright in these submillimeter wavelengths. The jets themselves aren't. Um, one related idea that has been posited has been that um, supermassive black holes that are the centers of these things that you can't see very well in the optical but are incredibly, incredibly hot... Are heating up the nearby dust, and then that dust is reradiating out in the infrared, and that's actually what's driving all this luminosity: is a supermassive black hole, and not um, and not just young stars forming, or maybe you know young stars forming are small small part of it. Um, that has not been ruled out; that that could be the case. Um, I think, m- from a simulation standpoint, we don't think that the black hole grows enough early enough for that to happen that they're still kind of puny when this is all going on but that may not be what's happening in real life this is just what what our our models would tell us in real life it's an open question question
0: here Uh, is there any hope that uh, with the new giant telescopes coming online in the next decade or so that we will be able to image the that galaxy optically
1: um that is a two-part question so the, the first thing is that they're very faint optically. Um, and that's the, the very reason they're bright in the infrared and submillimeter is the same reason they're faint in the optical. And it's because all of that optical light from the young stars is being blocked by cold dust and re radiated in the infrared. That said, um, these things are so darn bright that they're still pretty, you can still see them in the optical even with today's telescopes. Um, the resolution is not quite good enough yet, which leads me to the second part. But the next telescope we put up in space, uh, a lot of the work is being done right here in Stuart in, in the lab. Um, JWST should this is James Webb Space Telescope, sorry should be able to um, should be able to resolve these much better. I don't know if it'll be able to resolve it to the level of this image. Uh, I, I haven't actually tried to work that out. But then the next telescope after that, the Giant Magellan Telescope that Arizona is building the mirrors for. This is a 25 meter. I, I'm, I don't actually know. I think think like 25-meter segmented glass telescope. Um, And that will almost certainly be able to get these galaxies at this sort of resolution. Uh, And so that's that's like 10, 20 years away, 20 years away. I don't know. We have a question over here. How do we know that the infrared light coming from dust is coming from dust? How did we first figure that out? Um, So... That's a little hard, as everything in astronomy is hard. And that we never really know for sure, because you can't, I mean, for, only for a very small subset of things can you fly out, and I mean, that's really only the nearby planets, uh, and, and see for yourself. Um, but there's a lot of different lines of evidence that, um, that suggest this. So first is that we know it couldn't be any of the other things that we actually see. So it couldn't be stars, because stars are too hot and too blue. It couldn't be gas because the gas is too cold. Uh, some infrared light does come from the gas, but it, it also doesn't have a high enough uh, cross-section. It's not, it doesn't have a big enough area to actually block the ultraviolet and optical light. Um, the third is theoretical evidence. Uh, we can pretty cleanly write both a- analytic, computer, uh, analytic equations, so pen and paper equations, and um, chemical reaction networks that tell us what sort of molecules that eventually form into what we call dust form in the outer skins of these dying stars. And then those happen to have the right properties that would also block all of this light from the stars and re-radiate in the infrared. Uh, And then computer simulations can tell us the same thing happens. Um, And so all of these, you know, and we see certain lines of evidence of this, right? When we look at dying stars and we look around it, we can see these huge sloughed off skin shells of dust around it. So we, you know, we think there's pretty good observational evidence that, combined with the theoretical evidence, that this is probably not only the main origin of dust, but that's probably also what dust is, dust's main uh, consequence would be, is to block out the optical light and re it into the infrared. But, we can never i mean we could play games both you know with our telescopes and our computers and in a laboratory we could do the same thing but you know all we can say is all lines of evidence point to this but we'll, we'll never actually go out there and do it
0: it's any other hard. questions yes we have a question here
1: so for the sub uh, millimeter galaxies you said they're galaxy mergers like in that simulation that you showed us is it a constant cycle where they merge and then they detach and then they merge again or will they eventually just die off and never merge again? Um, that's, a, that's a very good question. Uh, so, so say you have just two galaxies. What they'll do is they'll bang together once and then they'll separate out. This kind of happened in the movies a little bit. And then they'll come back in. They won't really escape each other. And that's when they'll, they might bang a little bit, ring a little bit, but they'll be pretty close to one another at that point. You'd say. You'd say they merged. Um, They might, that new system could maybe merge with something else down the road. Um, It's almost certainly guaranteed to merge with some small things along the way. I mean, we're constantly, every galaxy is being bombarded by small galaxies. Our own Milky Way is being bombarded by two small galaxies right now uh, called the Magellanic Clouds. Um, But big, big, Mergers between two big galaxies are much more rare. So once a galaxy's done it once, odds are it's not going to happen again. It could, but probably given the amount of time the universe has that's passed in the universe, it wouldn't have happened.
0: Okay, we'll take one more question over here.
1: Two more? Okay. I mean, I can hang out all night. Okay. So since um, the things you said that like basically the brightest galaxy will be when there's a merger between two bigger galaxies. And you also said that there could be potentially like 100 billion different galaxies. What's the likelihood that three big galaxies combine together? Would that just be like super bright or It something? would be super, super bright, exactly. Yeah, okay. um, the likelihood is even more rare. Uh, you know, if it's hard to get two together, it's even harder to get three big ones in the same space. Um, but there are some places, like clusters of galaxies, where that sort of thing might happen. Um, as, you know, especially deep in the potential well, uh, sorry, in, the, in the very centers where all of the gravity is of these, ga- of these cl- galaxy clusters. So there it can happen a little bit as well. And some of these galaxies, like uh, the very bright one that this woman was referring to, um, we think actually are the very beginnings of some of these galaxy clusters, but just way back one billion years after the Big Bang. Um, so we think what these could be are just a bunch of small galaxies bombarding. And some of the most... The, the, the most luminous ones, the brightest ones, like this GN20 source, we actually see it break up with this ALMA telescope into three or four different galaxies. Um, so it could be that the very, very crazy ones are even more rare events than we typically simulate. One
0: more question. Are some of the descendants
1: of those submillimeter? do we see those as elliptical galaxies now? That's right. That's, um, that's most likely what they are. Uh, in the simulations, that's what would happen. And we think in real life that's what would happen. So, you know, in our own local universe, there's normal, happy spiral galaxies like our own, and then there's big elliptical monsters that you know are, are basically dead. And we think that the submillimeter galaxies eventually form these the biggest elliptical galaxies in the universe today.
0: Okay, I'd like to remind you, our next public evening is two weeks from tonight, October the 14th. Distinguished Professor Chris Impey has a new book to sell. It. <laughs> It ha- and it's just being published that week, it has to do with the ethical foundation and social implications of astrobiology, basically what will happen when we find the little green men. And he's going to talk about it, there will be books, folks, shh. there will be books for sale in the courtyard, in the uh, main lobby, plus we'll have refreshments as well. If you have never looked through a telescope that's pretty big, I invite you to go visit Dr. Christensen and our undergraduates at the 21-inch telescope. It's the big white building right next door. Go in the doors, up two flights of stairs. I'll stamp student assignments here. Dr. Holberg will see his students in the back. Let's thank Dr. Narayan one more time.